Welcome to Safa Security Chat Chat, episode 74 for September the 30th, 2011. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and my guest this week, once again, is Paul Ducklin. Welcome back, Paul. Hello, Chester. It's good to have you, and uh, I, I know we're both going to be uh, on the road for the next uh, short little bit, and um, I'm going off to Virus Bulletin in Barcelona, Spain. I'm going somewhere even more exciting. More exciting than Barcelona? Where are you going? I'm going to the Gold Coast in Queensland, Australia. The Gold Coast. So is this for the, uh, you know, the, the identity and high tech crime symposium thing that I'm hearing you're going to be attending? Yes. As, as I've written, this is, a, this is a joint venture between the Queensland police, other law enforcement and anyone interested in cyber criminality. The idea is 100 or more of us get together for a three day event where we all talk about how we can help each other deal with the burgeoning economic losses caused by cybercriminality. It's great because you come out of that conference knowing that you're not trying to fight alone. So it's really quite a boost to one's feeling that, as Winston Churchill said, we shall never give in, we shall never surrender. And that's how we should be with cyber crooks. We can win. Well, and Microsoft took some actions this week to uh, put a dent in that battle. Uh, they took they, they did another takedown. I guess is the third one of their Mars team, as they call it, has done. And it's the, you know, basically they worked with Kaspersky to sinkhole and at the same time coordinate a, you know, takedown of the command and control infrastructure of this botnet. Uh, it was quite small in the big picture. I mean, it was only about 40 some thousand odd hosts, which, you know, may sound like a big number. But when we understand how many people's computers are impacted by, you know, remote control Trojans and botnets, uh, botnet controllers and this kind of thing, you know, it's, it's not that big a number. Every little bit helps. And as Microsoft themselves pointed out, it does send a message. We can get you and we're willing to try. So watch out. Yeah, absolutely. I I didn't mean to d- diminish the importance of the activity. So I think it's really to be commended that not only is Microsoft making an impact by getting rid of some of these infected machines, but they're kind of forging a new path in the legal system that's been seemingly largely ignored. Yes, I, I love that idea. They, they get a court order to say, okay, we recognize that this chap, I've forgotten his name, who's running a domain called .cz.cc, we're going to get a legal right to treat him as hostile. And the real embarrassment, Chester, about all of this is .cc is actually the Cocos brackets Keeling Islands, which is an overseas dependent territory of Australia. So .cc falls under Australian federal law, and it seems a great pity, maybe a bit of a wake-up call to all the federal public servants in Australia, that this is actually Australian sovereign territory. If we can regulate .com.au, we jolly well should be able to regulate .cc to prevent this sort of nonsense happening. Is this the equivalent for our American listeners then of something like uh, Puerto Rico or, I mean, it's, it's part of your federal government? It's just not a state and it's not self-governing. Think of Guam or something like that. Okay. Well, the, I guess CZ, CZ.cc is another whole conversation, which I didn't really bring up, I guess, in my introduction, which is... We've seen a ridiculous amount of abuse in that domain name, and the fact that Microsoft has been able to get the courts to basically revoke it and shut it down, it, you know, won't eliminate cybercrime, which I, I wrote a post on this week. It's not like it's going to make the problem go away, but it certainly puts a little dent in the problem And that there was such an easy place to get free domain services to use for every variety of scam. I mean, not only did we see things like Mac Defender fake uh, security software for the Mac coming out on that domain, we also were seeing every kind of phishing scam and all kinds of spam rotating through these domains. I mean, yes, the CZ is owned by this guy who's now a uh, civil defendant in Microsoft, against Microsoft, uh, Dominique Alexander Pietti, 
he's a Czech. And there's also .co.cc, which is, as far as I remember, owned by a Korean bloke. People look at .co.cc and imagine it's a regulated second-level domain like .com.au or .co.za. It's not. It's just a subdomain straight off the top-level domain .cc that happens to be called .co. It gives it a credibility it doesn't deserve. And like cz.cc, absolutely bucket loads in the high 90% of the domains going up there are, are used for fraudulent purposes. And the Australian government simply hasn't acted. And that's not good enough. They need to get onto this. Would be easy problem to fix, in my opinion. And it, it redounds to the embarrassment of the Australian public service that we haven't done something about it so far. I guess, speaking of Australia and internet regulation and things, uh, the US... Uh put out a kind of request for comment uh, period this last week, uh, asking for people in the industry to talk to them about how we might have ISPs cooperate to look for known botnet traffic, perhaps IP addresses that are known to be command and control servers for botnets, um, you know, different call home and different types of network activity that can be defined as something that's known to be malicious. And they're looking to see if there's a way we can kind of have a voluntary code of contact in the United States to shut that down. Now, I think you wrote about some stuff on Naked Security last year that, you know, Australia's had a program like that for quite a while now called iCode. Is that correct? That's correct, Chester. It's just coming up in December this year. It will have had one year of trial. To the best of my knowledge, most ISPs are on board. It's voluntary. It's not something that the regulators have said you have to do. And the idea is that ISPs get a little more proactive in trying to contact customers who have zombies. Now, this is a big ask of an ISP because it increases your cost of doing business. Because obviously, if the person's had a bot, a zombie on their PC for three months and hasn't noticed, then just sending them emails saying, hey, you might want to do something about it probably isn't going to work. So you actually have to make a call to the person. Then you have to explain to them why you're, that you're not a fake support caller, get them to call you back and try and talk them through the fact that they're part of the problem and that they need to become part of the solution to it getting rid of the bot. But my understanding is for, for many of the ISPs, particularly, particularly the larger ones, just from looking at IP numbers people are connecting to, they can fairly easily identify you know, the top 10 or top 20 offenders. And the good news is there's no packet sniffing or censorship or looking inside what you're doing here at all. All they're doing is going on what is effectively an already publicly made announcement by an infected user. So for ISPs to do that, it does cost them money, it is a big effort, but it does actually deal with the problem at source. Well, and hopefully that raises awareness amongst those users that, you know, there's some steps they need to take. You'd hope so. Of course, there'll always be those who genuinely don't care. And of course, that raises the question, are we moving towards a future in which regulations will prevent people from having access to the internet if they're not prepared to meet certain minimum standards. So I'm not going to go down the crazy internet passport or driving license argument. I really don't like those sort of analogies. They just don't fit. But if you think about it, if you routinely use the civil courts as a means of getting at people, in other words, you just start lawsuits just to screw people over, basically, you can be declared a vexatious litigant. It's quite rare. There are very few people on the list at any time. But you actually lose the, that civil right of being able to use the courts as a last recourse in an argument because you've abused the privilege of being able to do so. And it would be really nice if we don't have to get to that sort of point in terms of things like internet access. Yeah, well, I mean, we see that, uh, you know, there's over 3 million hosts that still have Comficker installed. So clearly there's plenty of people out there that have had problems for a year, if not years. 
Amazon announced a new tablet that was making quite a bit of press stir this week. And the the big deal to me was on a privacy issue again. I mean, they, they introduced a new browser called Silk. And so Amazon's introducing this idea that you can create one connection between your tablet and the massive Amazon cloud. And they can accelerate your web surfing by uh, formatting the content so that nothing gets sent down to your tablet that it can't render or maybe reducing the quality of the graphics and the resolution so that they are the right size for the screen and they're not larger than what you can display to make it faster and a more enjoyable experience even on a contested Wi-Fi connection at the conference or at the coffee shop or at the airport. So do you think they'll try and patent this and then, uh, and then ask Opera? who've been doing Opera Mini, which is basically the same thing for years, ask Opera to pay fees? Or do you think they'll recognize that this time they came second? What they would have to do is then patent the idea of what, what the, the unique part is. And the unique part is that they're going to log everything. No, been done, Chester. Form. British Telecom and form. Been done. Can't be patented. Prior art. Um, well, but that, that's for a different reason. But uh, British Telecom and Form did it for the reason of snooping, not for the reason of acceleration. So the, the creative patentable idea is that we can both trace you and accelerate your connection. See, it's a really beautiful thing. Okay, and so provided that snooping is the secondary aim? Well, and I, I don't honestly believe that uh, Amazon's goal in this is necessarily snooping. I mean, I think they are uh, doing it for the, the reason they state, which is to make their tablet have a competitive advantage by being faster at surfing and more efficient at using bandwidth. But many of us are concerned about the idea that, of course, Amazon's an American-based company, and under U.S. law, they have access then to everything that might ever transit your browser, including your secure traffic. If they are recording that data, just to be slightly fair to Amazon for a moment, the, they do state that what they are going to record includes, I think, IP number, MAC address, and URI. If that's what all that they're storing, and we accept that that really is all they're storing, and that's all they're commercializing and monetizing, in many ways, you can say they're not doing much more than what a lot of ISPs are already doing. Well, and I think that's the important part here is that um, it's not to cast judgment whether it's a right or a wrong or whether it's different than an ISP or some other service provider. It's to raise awareness to say, if you haven't read the privacy policy and you're interested in buying one of these devices, this is what's going to occur. And if you're not comfortable with that, um, I really want to credit Amazon for, you know, out of the gate, including a, an option to say, I want to use off cloud mode. I'm willing to sacrifice those 20, 30, 50 milliseconds, whatever it might be, um, that I might get a benefit from this service and opt out of it and, and use it th the traditional way. But you're right, people do need to realize that the benefit that it may be very slightly faster or that the rendering might be better suited to the device and take some of the load off the tablet, meaning it need, can be lower power and therefore cheaper, that there is that flip side that the actual browsing is being done on your behalf and the content potentially recorded by that third party, in this case, Amazon. Buried in all these agreements, whether it's with Facebook, with LinkedIn, with Google, with Amazon, with anybody, there are these decisions you're making and when something is uh, affordable or free there's always something you're giving up and ultimately to some degree you're the product in these situations and it's important for people to be aware of that uh, we we have talked a bit about mac malware this year more than ever really uh, and it turns out there have been two new mac trojans in the last seven or eight days uh, there was one pretending to be a flash player updater yep and there was another one pretending to be a pdf file to social engineer people into 
opening these files. So, you know, a lot of talk went on about the Mac fake antivirus and rogue security stuff that went on back in June and May. Is this an indicator that cyber criminals realize, you know, that worked well enough that it's worth another go? Like, you know, they're going to keep developing? It certainly looks like it, doesn't it? And it does suggest that at least some parts of the cyber criminal world are giving giving Mac a little bit of a whirl, maybe seeing what they can get out of it. It seems to trace back to a well-known IP address range in Romania that is known for a slew of previous fake security software, fake antivirus kind of things that have, have been going around for years. It appears to be a well-known group of previous criminals who have made lots of their riches off of Windows, simply figuring that, you know, maybe they can lure a few Mac users to become a new part of their prey. Market research, yeah. in other words. Which, I guess, kind of comes to the last topic I wanted to cover in this week's Chat Chat. The Beast, I mean, you would think, listening to The Register and many other publications on the internet, that the virtual sky and the, the, the clouds that we've all put our data in were so heavy with our data that they're collapsing on our heads. Uh, the Earth's going to come to an end. We can never have another secure transaction on the internet. You know, what's your take on The Beast? Yes, Beast, browser exploit against SSL slash TLS. If you look at how it works, the idea is that for some cipher modes, some encryption modes in SSL and TLS up to version 1.0, if you're using cipher, what's called cipher block chaining, which is basically a trick to turn a block cipher, such as DES or AES, into a stream cipher, like RC4, then it actually borrows previous ciphertext, previous text that you would have seen, to use as the what's supposedly the random initialization vector for the next block of stuff it's encrypting. And that means it's vulnerable to what's called a, a known plain text attack, where you inject deliberately plain text in so that you can affect what's going to happen in encrypting the next block. But it sounds rather complicated, right? I mean, you're, you're saying that you have to be able to inject text into something I'm already doing, so... The interesting news is that this is a known vulnerability and that using a cipher block chaining, you're not supposed to have predictable initialization vectors. When you convert a block cipher to a stream cipher, the initialization vector should be randomly chosen. It shouldn't be something that is predictable in advance. And so, in fact, TLS 1.1 came out many years ago that uses a random initialization vector every time it needs to start a new cipher stream, not the ciphertext from the end of the previous block. So in fact, there already exists, five years old, a very simple change to the TLS client and server code. The big problem is that OpenSSL, which is one of the most widely used implementations of SSL, doesn't yet support TLS 1.1, neither at the client nor at the server. So maybe this will just push us to actually accept that when cryptographers say, hey, this is a known weakness, Let's, let's design around it, let's fix it, um, that actually what that means is that we should listen to them, we should implement those changes, and sometime in the next five years, for goodness sake, we should actually do something about it. Well, I guess th that means that the cloud is not falling, but we certainly should be putting pressure on our vendors to update and make sure that, you know... Did you say the cloud is not falling? No, the cloud is not falling. The I thought you meant the sky, surely. It's the sky that falls. No, well, we're, we, we're, it's all about the cloud, Paul. I mean, if you haven't been paying attention to the media, it is all about the cloud, my friend. But that does wrap up Soft Security Chat Chat 74. 
As always, for the latest security news, please visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. All of these podcasts and uh, all of our other audio content are available on podcasts.sophos.com, via iTunes, or on Stitcher. And until next time, stay secure.